This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. My guest on this episode is Dr. Puck Brecker, Associate Professor of History in the Department of History at Washington State University. Dr. Brecker's most recent publication is Honored and Dishonored Guests, Westerners in Wartime Japan, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2017. Dr. Brecker, thank you for being here today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So your recent book, Honored and Dishonored Guests, is, is about wartime Japan. But I understand in the past you've also done some research on the Meiji period. So I'm curious, what is your approach to the Meiji period, and, and what are some of your thoughts on the Meiji period more broadly? Yes. Uh, my most recent book is on the war, and then uh, the book I published prior to that was on the Edo period. So I I've jumped over the Meiji period, uh, and to suggest that I have an approach to the Meiji period may be uh, exaggerated. But uh, yeah, I've, I, I have dabbled in the Meiji period, and what I have ended up doing, really, uh, I think is, is challenging the modernization from above uh, narrative. I think the standard conversation about the Meiji period goes, or posits that, uh, Modernization was uh, inflicted upon the Japanese people from above, and to a great extent, I think that's true. It's undeniably true. But I think what doesn't uh, get a lot of recognition is the fact, or, or at least from my view, the, the perception that modernization also happened organically from below or from the middle uh, in certain contexts. And I can give you an example of uh, two contexts in which I think that may be happening, and one is leisure, uh, and the other is individuality. Uh, so I've been looking at, at the emergence of proto-resorts, uh, resort sites, quote-unquote, discovered by Westerners uh, living uh, in the Meiji period, and uh, how those resort sites uh, emerged into full-fledged uh, resort towns. Uh, and I'm talking about places like Hakone, which is uh, within striking distance of Tokyo, of course. Uh, and places like Nikko and Karuizawa, which is in Nagano, and Rokosan, down near Kobe. And all of these places were first, you know, again, I'll use the word discovered. Of course, they weren't discovered, but they were, uh, let's say, re repurposed uh, by Westerners uh, living in the, uh, in the foreign concessions or these Western settlements. These foreigners found uh, Japanese summers uh, hot, humid, uh, awful, uh, and uh, they wanted to get away to some higher elevations where it would be cooler, uh, where they could get away from the hustle of these urban areas. And, uh, and so they ended up uh, appropriating these various highland areas uh, in the mountains and going there in the summers. And as they became more popularized, Japanese people started noticing that this was happening. Uh, and they started going there as well. And so by the 1880s, 1890s, places like Hakone and uh, Karuizawa, as I mentioned, the others, other places I mentioned came a little bit later, these were now summer resorts. And we find uh, not only Westerners taking summer vacations, but Japanese who had the money to do so, we find them also taking summer vacations and this was a new development. It was actually a controversial development. 
some Japanese didn't like the idea of uh, taking summer vacations, and this goes for schools as well. When the Meiji government uh, implemented its, its new modern public school system, uh, there was some debate as to whether they would have summer vacations for children. And long story short, they, they left it up to, initially they left it up to the individual school districts whether they would have summer vacations and how long they would be and so forth. So summering and taking summer vacations was, uh, was a new practice. And it was led not by government policy, it was led by Japanese people and Japanese educators, school teachers and school principals, making decisions on their own about what to do during the summertime, where to go and how to spend their, their free time. And so I think this is a, an interesting example of, of modernization or westernization occurring organically from below. And also occurring as a result of perhaps symbiosis between mm. Japanese and Westerners coming into Japan. I was reminded as you were talking about Hakone and Karuizawa and places mm -hmm. like Nikko. Mm -hmm. Here at UBC, we, we have this fascinating collection of photographs of Japan in the 1890s, both at the Museum of Anthropology, but also mm -hmm. in the rare books and special collections. And, and many of these, uh, including uh, travel albums and kind of glass lantern slides, they're all artifacts that were brought back to North America from Japan. And without fail, the places that are being depicted in these photographs are always Hakone, Karuizawa, Nikko. Huh. And so when I talk about this in class, I always ask students, well, who's making these photographs? You know, obviously this, yeah. these are Japanese photographers who are, who are taking these uh, photographs and then selling them to the foreigners because the foreigners, you know, want to have some kind of documentation of their travels mm -hmm. to Japan. And so, I mean, this seems to be a, a good example of how this, these tourist sites yeah. become codified as, as a result of the symbiosis, perhaps? Oh, yeah, I think uh, that's a good point. Of course, there were Western photographers there as well, so uh, I'm right. not sure who took these particular photographs. But, yes, these sites did become commercialized uh, or commodified as uh, desirable places to go during the summer uh, or the winter, perhaps, uh, as well. So, so yes, we have a, a budding tourism industry here occurring without any sort of uh, encouragement or interference or involvement whatsoever by the government. Uh, and in fact, the government didn't even enact tourism incentives or, or a tourist program until about 1907. And these sorts of practices have already been in place for almost 50 years prior to that. of the kind of grassroots modernization of the Meiji period. One was the tourism, but the other was individuality. Yes, right. Well, so Peter Nosko has literally written the book on, uh, <laughs> on individuality in the early modern, in Japan's early modern period. I've been looking recently, uh, and I haven't published anything on this, so uh, you know anything that I may say here is, uh, is preliminary. And recorded forever. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yet I've been interested in 
Well, interrogating this this binary, uh, this binary, namely Western individualism, Japanese collectivism, mm -hmm. that seems to be so uncritically accepted, uh, and, and we're all familiar with the slogan uh, that the protruding nail gets pounded down, right? And I think there are many reasons why why this uh, cliche has stood the test of time, and it's been there you know, at least a century, if not a, if not since the beginning of the Meiji period, if not uh, even earlier than that. I think there are several reasons why people have been resistant to challenging this. One reason, perhaps, is that it explains uh, Japan's success in emulating the West and modernizing so quickly and so successfully. Oh, those Japanese, uh, they didn't think about uh, self-interest. They all worked together as a collective and were able to modernize their country much more quickly and successfully than anyone, any other. Uh, this binary also, I think, affirms Orientalist validation of Westerners and a subordination of Japanese. And, and then the flip side, of course, is it validates uh, uh, Nihonjinron, uh, validation of Japanese uh, and subordinating uh, Westerners. So the Japanese are unique. We are uh, uniquely collectivistic. Uh, and so, you know, for a number of reasons, I think this, this binary Western individualism versus Japanese collectivism has, has been reaffirmed and reaffirmed. And for some good reasons, it's been affirmed. Uh, I, you know, I would never say that, that uh, it doesn't hold water, but uh, I think we could approach that or engage with that particular narrative uh, in a more nuanced way. And if you look at the Meiji period, as I said, there's good reason to argue that Japanese modernization was a top-down phenomenon. But uh, if you look, for example, at uh, how individuals were treated in the education system. You see that Japanese education in the Meiji period honored the individual student. It attempted to educate the entire child, and that included honoring individuality. And in fact, Japanese educators and school administrators uh, implemented a policy of having teachers evaluate uh, student personality and individuality on paper. On, on these charts uh, called uh, Nikkahyo, and it went from there. And by, by the time we get to the 1890s, uh, and, and uh, certainly by the time we get to the Taisho period, we see individuality as, as an official policy, or, or e the evaluation of student individuality as an official policy being embraced now by the Ministry of Education. So this is another example of how individual educators and individual school districts led the way for this kosei uh, soncho, uh, or respect of individuality, that later became national policy and practice implemented in schools around Japan. Now, one narrative we have of Meiji-era schooling in particular, in the 1870s, it's, it's all the, the kind of Fukuzawa Yukichi narratives mm -hmm. of jitsugaku, and mm -hmm. the training of, of children mm -hmm. to be prosperous individuals and do what they can to support the state, uh, going out and learning science, learning to read, learning these foreign languages, and this all, the whole idea of kind of self-improvement in order to improve the nation. But then this seems, there seems to be a, a turn in the policies around the 1880s, where mm -hmm. maybe with the resurgence of Confucian morals and education, tutors like Motoda Eifu, who, who kind of 
reintroduce Confucianism to the educate into the education system. Things like the imperial rescript on education, mm -hmm. which is more about the place of the children inside of this family on the small scale, but then within the family nation on the larger scale. Whereas mm -hmm. it's not so much on self-improvement, now it's about being a subservient subject. How accurate is this narrative or is, is there more individuality that we should be paying attention to even within this shift? Well, I think both are happening, happening simultaneously. Absolutely, as you, as you just mentioned, the Japanese government adopts a, a, a Prussian model of education that is more authoritarian, more nationalistic, oriented and, and this uh, yeah this starts in the 80s and then it's uh, you know reaffirmed under, under the uh, the rescript in 1890 and so forth but it, it's exactly at the same time that more and more educators are becoming interested in Western pedagogy uh, and, and and going abroad going to the United States and going to Europe and stu studying, uh, Euro-American pedagogy and bringing those ideas about honoring individuality back to their own schools uh, and they're publishing books about it and those books uh, are being circulated widely and so and so actually you know both strains uh, are coexisting and uh, and spreading at, at this time and so that's you know that's an interesting yeah, phenomenon uh, so it's hard to know which which is stronger uh, it, it's hard yeah it's hard to say which became dominant certainly by the time by the 1930s we know which is dominant but the fact that the Ministry of Education went so far as to mandate daily evaluation of, of each individual student's individuality and personality uh, indicates that this was no fringe movement uh, by any means. And what year was that? Well, that was 1927 okay. that, that, that that became policy, yes. So perhaps as part of this, you know, if we want to give away to the term Taisho democracy, maybe mm. the, the idea of, oh, yeah. of liberalism and embracing global trends. Oh, yes. time period. So there's this gap in the middle, right, of, of the major period. How did you jump from, I mean, basically jumping over a good 50 years, even more, right? Jump almost, yeah, yeah. almost 100 years, would you say? Right, yes, 100 years. Uh -huh. So kind of jumping over 100 years, what is it that attracted you to this new topic? Well, for me, I, I have to uh, research something that I have a personal interest in and that excites me, not just intellectually, but emotionally. And by the time I finished my first book on Edo period uh, eccentric artists and eccentric aesthetics, I was spent on that particular topic. And uh, everything I had to say about that topic, I had said already. And so when this, when this new project uh, presented itself to me, I saw it as an opportunity. And even though I uh, I didn't see myself as a specialist, a modern Japanese specialist by any means. I thought, why not? And um, at my particular university, I'm the, only, I'm the only faculty there that studies Japan. And so no one minds if I'm a generalist. Uh, you know, I, I can carve out uh, whatever turf I want to for myself. 
and no one's and no one's going to feel offended or threatened by it. And so, and so I guess that's the upside of working at a university where you, you're forced to be a generalist. That certainly carries over, at least in my case, it carried over into my research topics. recent work on foreigners in wartime Japan. We talk about the foreigners coming to Japan during the Meiji period, and, mm-hmm. and clearly some of these foreigners do tend to stay on longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the missionaries who provided many of the photographs that we have was mm-hmm. in Japan for several decades. Mm-hmm. And so we have these foreigners who stay in Japan even into the wartime. So what happens to these foreigners during the war? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, the smart ones got out. Uh, uh, before Pearl Harbor. And what happened to them really depends on uh, the nationalities that they held, the the passports that they held. Many of them in Japan during the war were German. And so what happened to them? Well, they lived uh, high on the hog. Uh, The German embassy took care of them and the Japanese government also took care of them. And so while the rest of the country basically scrounged for food and tried to live on 300 grams of uh, rice daily, and this was the daily ration provided to Japanese citizens. German citizens were receiving uh, double or triple that amount, uh, as well as all sorts of luxury items. Uh, In many cases, they were evacuated, uh, or or later in the war from 1943-44, evacuated away from urban areas, and interestingly, to places like Karuizawa and Hakone, which which had been populated by foreigners, as I mentioned, uh, uh, for several generations prior to that. So they were treated well. Enemy nationals, if these missionaries uh, happened to be Americans or Canadians or or British, well, then um, one of several things happened to them. If they were males between the ages of 18 and 45, they were put into low-security internment camps. And when I say low-security, I mean low-security because uh, they were allowed to leave the camps regularly. You know, every camp had their own policies about that, but, but it was common for them to be allowed to go home once a week or to go out, go out into town shopping for necessities, uh, you know, when they wanted to and so forth. One camp that I studied actually said that there were no guards at all on Sundays uh, and only one or two guards the rest of the days of the week. So, so it's not like they were behind bars or, or anything like that. It was more of a place to contain these enemy nationals. And, and they were f- treated fairly well. Was the intent mainly then to, I mean, there's no hope of them swimming back to <laughs> North America or anything, but is the main intent then to prevent espionage or prevent sending of signals, things like that? Uh, yes, uh, I think that was one of the main concerns, that, that these people would pose a security risk and somehow transfer sensitive information to their governments overseas. So yeah, I think that was, uh, that was the, main, the, the main worry that the Japanese government had. Also, there were these exchanges, uh, prisoner exchanges, that were being negotiated. And so these foreign residents, these uh, enemy nationals, would be, at least theoretically, exchanged sometime during the war. And so they wanted them in hand, as it were, to prepare them to board these exchange ships. 
Uh, I, I know in places like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was American prisoners of war present in some cases. Mm -hmm. I think in particular in Nagasaki's case, the Americans were aware of that. Mm -hmm. But these internment camps, were that you said they were primarily outside of the major cities, and so I assume they wouldn't have been affected by firebombing? Later in the war, yes, they were moved outside. Uh, initially, they were set up very hastily in whatever set of facilities the authorities could find race track, you know, the, the horse racing track in, in Yokohama, in fact, was used as, as one. And many of them were, were within the city boundaries uh, initially. Of course, uh, when the air raids started in late 1943, they were moved to safer locations. Have you found any discussion of why they were moving them? Or, I mean, it seems incredibly hospitable. Exactly, okay. yeah. Yeah, I think the Japanese government felt responsible for caring for the well-being of these foreigners who were, were civilians, right? I mean, they were mostly missionaries, teachers, and businessmen who had been living in Japan for years. Uh, and the Japanese government felt responsible for seeing to their well-being. They provided them with, with roughly double the amount of rations that the Japanese government was getting, giving to their own citizens. And they were evacuating them from the dangerous cities. And pain, by the way, you know, pain not only for the men who were in the camps to be evacuated, but pain for their families, pain for their children and their wives who remained free in their own homes, pain their expense, their evacuation expenses as well. Of course, they didn't give their own citizens these sorts of benefits. So, so yes, uh, so these people were treated, uh, I think, quite hospitably, even though they were technically interned. So when, when the American occupation forces come in at the end of August 1945, is there a liberation of the camps, so to speak? Or is it on August 15th, are the internment camps, you know, doors just thrown open or people are <laughs> able to go leave on their own will? Or? Yes, the doors are thrown open. The people are able to leave. The only exception to that is people who are in, not in internment camps, but are actually in prison. And there was only a small handful of such individuals. These were espionage suspects who had been tortured to confess their, their crimes and had been put on trial and found guilty and given prison sentences. So these people were, uh, this very small handful of individuals were... Well, they were liberated, but they had to have a representative of their governments come and actually get them out of prison. If, if there was no representative able to do that, then they remained for a short period, I'm talking two or three weeks, in prison before, yeah, before they could be released. So when yeah. was, do you know when the last person was released? How soon it was after the end of the war? The last person... Uh, Several weeks, two weeks, I think, at the most. And really, we're only talking about, we're talking about less than 10 individuals here. I see. Yeah. I, I was thinking, kind of moving later into the occupation period when you have the Japanese B and C class war criminals coming back to places like Sugamo Prison. And so I was, uh, I was wondering uh, if there's any overlap. No. Okay. No, there's no overlap. No, the, the occupation uh, forces made sure that well, particularly American citizens, but other Allied citizens were uh, all liberated. So as a generalist who's teaching Japanese history, can I ask how you 
teach about the Meiji Restoration and the Meiji period in general in your classroom. What are some of the themes that you used in talking about it, uh, maybe narratives that you use to really bring this to life for your students? I find the Meiji period to be an, an excellent opportunity to introduce students to the idea of, of the modern and what is modern. And, and when I say that sentence to them, uh, I see eyes roll and I, I hear inaudible groans. And yet I consider it to be absolutely essential that they understand what, what modern is. I think for many of my students, modern means anything after the invention of the, of the smartphone. Um, <laughs> anything before that is uh, simply okay. barbaric. And so they equate modernity with technology, uh, when in fact it's actually more of an ontological shift. And so I use the Meiji period or the, or the Restoration and the aftermath of the Restoration as an opportunity to uh, introduce them to what modernity is, uh, what uh, early modernity is, and uh, to some extent uh, what post-modernity is. And I do this over the course of one or two class periods. Uh, I find using John Hall's chapter uh, from one of those uh, Princeton books uh, published back in the 60s. There were, I think there were five or six of them. Uh -huh. But it's a chapter in which he, ha he lists out various criteria of a modern society. Mm -hmm. Not Japanese society per se, but any modern society. Uh, and, uh, and I find these concise and very useful because uh, they're universally, one's able to apply them universally to any modernizing society and simply apply them to the United States as well. And so I use that as a, as a pedagogical aid, I suppose, introducing students to what Meiji Japan faced. The other thing I like to do uh, or find myself doing is showing the dark underbelly of the modernization experience. So not just talking about structural modernizations and technological change, but also the modernization as a jarring existential uh, experience that many Japanese people found terrifying or confusing or, or alienating. I, I give the example, for example, of, uh, of uh, Kawanawi Kyosai, who was an artist, uh, a satirical artist, and who had uh, established a good reputation for himself uh, for painting satirical works. But then after the Restoration, Japan had lost its sense of humor with those sorts of satirical works. Uh, and the first time he tried painting one, he got arrested and thrown in jail for five months. And when he emerged from jail, he apparently had realized that uh, it was a new age for Japan and he, either he had to make the transition or perish professionally. And so he was able to make the transition. He changed the kyo in his name, kyo, uh, kyosai. Originally the kyo had meant madness, but he uh, dropped that character and adopted a different character instead, meaning Dawn. So this uh, you know, symbolic changing of his professional name was a, was a way for him to adapt to the changing, well, uh, market and uh, ethical landscape and so forth. And then uh, for contrast, I talk about another painter, uh, Tsukiyoka Yoshitoshi, who was similar to Kyosai. Uh, was a very emotional, erratic man whose paintings reflect his, reflected his own emotional, uh, well, his turbulent mind. And he could not make uh, the, tr the, uh, the transformation uh, or the adjustments necessary. And he went mad. In fact, 
uh, and he was institutionalized and pronounced uh, incurable, uh, and he couldn't sell any of his paintings anymore, so he became impoverished, and uh, he eventually died, uh, tragically, of a combination of uh, poverty and insanity, I suppose. Um, and he, so, so I use these two examples to show how you know, the, the choices that Meiji individuals were faced with uh, at this particular moment. And, um, you know, I, I find it difficult to convey this jarring existential experience to my students. I, I'm not sure why. Perhaps they have no personal experience with things like uh, culture shock or, uh, or, or ontological, you know, shifts or challenges or existential uh, crisis themselves. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but... So I, I use the anecdotes of these two painters. I also use Fukuzawa, uh, Fukuzawa's uh, autobiography, in which, you know, as you as you know, he uh, gives accounts of his experiences in America and the culture shock mm -hmm. he encounters there. I find this is a good material to uh, introduce uh, to students this uh, these particular set of challenges. If you want to induce existential crisis, <laughs> just take away their phones. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> would that I could. <laughs> the Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.